0: All right. Well, welcome to Upbeat from Everything Conducting. Enrico, unless my math is wrong, this is season three, episode four. My name is John Hi. Devlin, and I am the music director of the Wheeling
1: Symphony Orchestra here in beautiful West Virginia. And I'm Enrico Lopez-Yanez, the one frantically trying to start his recording on time, because John, you didn't give me enough moments to actually hit record, but I am recording now too. Welcome. I am the Principal Pops Conductor of the Nashville Symphony. So good to be back on the mic with you, John. And it's fun to look back into your office at home in Nashville. Uh, welcome back. Yeah. Thanks. It's been a while, but yeah, it's good to be back in my own bed and back on the mic with you. Yeah. Tell so. everybody what you were up to this past month. I just got back from Chicago, where I was working with Chicago Opera Theater on a production of Daniel Catan's La Hija de Rapaccini, which is a 90-minute opera. It was actually Catan's first opera that he kind of got some international success on, Mm -hmm, because it was mm -hmm. the first opera performed by a major American company written by a Mexican composer. Right, And that was the San Diego Opera that premiered that here in in the States. Uh, and afterwards, he wrote several other pieces, his most famous, of course, being Florencia el Amazon, which is the one that's probably done the most uh, in this country.
0: Yeah. And, and an interesting connection is that the first opera I ever conducted was Florencia at the University of Maryland. Oh. And it was both a joy. And that piece was the first... Spanish-language opera ever commissioned by an American opera house. Houston did that one. Right. And um, a very sad part of that story is that Catan was on his way to attend our performance of that piece because it was, I think, only the third performance given of that opera, and he passed away right before oh. we... Premiered that. So that was very sad, but it was, it's certainly gorgeous music. And for people who haven't heard of Catan's music, I mean, the Florencia is far different than the the one you just conducted, but this is like the very best of maybe Stravinsky and Puccini combined. Like the opening sounds (laughs) just like the Strove Tide Fair from Petrushka. And it was just a gorgeous piece with the most amazing soprano arias in it. And I don't know, how did you, how did the music strike you in, in this one?
1: Yeah, very similarly. I mean, there's a lot of sort of modal based composing a lot of influence from his time that he spent in Japan. So you have a lot of really unique orchestral colors. Uh, But then he breaks out into these arias that sound like a Pugini opera, like you said. And it's really interesting, sort of the dichotomy between those two styles and how he intertwines them throughout his works. Yeah. And we should say hi to our very good mutual friend, Lydia Yankoskaya. Uh, That's right. Because you had such great things to say about the company. Absolutely. They were just such a pleasure to work with. And, I mean, to be able to put on an opera, first of all, during a pandemic at all, and to do it at the high level and with high attention to detail and safety and protocol, it was really impressive. So my hat tips to them. And don't forget high level of guest conductor. Well, (laughs) you said it, (laughs) not me. (laughs) But you've had a busy week in Wheeling, too, John. Tell me what you've been up to. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this... This is a really exciting
0: time for the Wheeling Symphony, and last week was action-packed. We hired a new executive director just about four weeks ago, whose name is Brian Bronnick. And he's a very exciting young um, arts administrator with whom I've worked actually for the past two years, because he was the general manager here. And he won a national search for this job. And he brought a, an, an incredible vision for what the symphony could be over the next decade. And uh, that included a new way for us to do our budgeting and our, a new way for us to reorganize the staff. And both of those things came into effect this past week. Um, I'm very excited about where we're going. We're going to be able to hire a staff conductor for the first time. We're going to hire a new manager of artistic operation and planning. And so that will be posted soon if anybody's interested. And <laughs> um, we had an amazing concert on Friday where I actually stepped off of the podium and we had the musicians uh, takeover, which was what it was called. We had 24 chamber groups from within the orchestra apply to this kind of mini grant program that actually Jim Ross inspired me to think about through a conversation that we had and something he did in Alexandria. And then of those, nine were selected by a panel of arts leaders and symphony supporters in our community to receive grant funds to rehearse and perform the works on this concert. And then a really interesting component of that was that at the end, the audience had to vote for their favorite work and the winners got additional money and that was just amazing because the audience is listening in an entirely different way since they're adjudicating the performances and yeah. the players had to bring the, the time limit they had was seven minutes at maximum okay. so imagine your players saying this is the seven minutes of music that I believe in the most and they all deliver <laughs> that it's really important and, and we had a great time and we also announced our season which I did as a presentation to the audience during the tabulation of the voting so we killed that oh. dead time with something very exciting and I'm sure in a future pod, we'll talk a little bit about what our next seasons look like. So what was the winning piece? Ah, The winning piece was Libertango by Astor Piazzolla. Ah, and interestingly, as you know, our mission is all about American music. The nine <laughs> winning uh, winning projects, seven of them, were by living American composers. So wow. that is what – I was not on the panel. That was what the panel mm-hmm. picked and what the players – presented to us so i think Amazing. that that's a really good sign for the ethos around our organization kind of being champions for american music
1: well and it's also a piazzolla anniversary year so that's pretty good that's too, pretty good too. Included that. <laughs> yeah and we had Maureen conlan gutierrez and
0: rodrigo ojeda playing libertango so it was really Amazing. awesome yeah and it was the closing number which might have given them a little advantage because after they played everyone had to fill out their ballot uh, <laughs> <laughs> but hey I, it was really spectacular and we had pieces we had two oboists playing rock and roll. And we had, yeah, we had all sorts of crazy stuff. And we also had the
1: Trout Quintet, which was really nice too. Very nice. That's now that is an eclectic program, but one that I would very much want to attend.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And speaking of, you know, awesome performances by musicians this is uh, the content of our episode is going to be centered around soloists who we get to work with on a consistent basis in both of our fields here. And one of the soloists that I'm going to actually work with here in Wheeling next season is Natasha Peremsky, who will be our guest today. Natasha is an outstanding piano soloist, having performed with orchestras throughout North America, like the Los Angeles Philharmonic and the San Francisco Symphony, and we are really looking forward to our conversation with her where she'll talk about what it's like to be a soloist, working with conductors, and her new role as the Artistic Director of the New York Piano Society. And Enrico, do you want to tell everybody a little bit about what the 4-4
1: is going to look like today? Yeah, so we're going to dive into dissecting every aspect of a soloist's involvement with the orchestra and the ways in which you might have to interact with that soloist. I think it'll be really fun. So I think we're ready to go. So why don't we give our first upbeat and head to the 4-4.
0: Welcome to the
1: 4-4. Well, today we're going to take our upbeat look at the topic of working with soloists. Beat one is planning your visit. The first step when you are choosing a soloist is not only to choose the soloist, John, but we also have to decide what that person is playing. And sometimes you have a lot of options. Sometimes you have very few options (laughs) because they may say, this is all I'm offering this season. So then you're just like, "Okay, it's either this or that. And that's it. Right. Uh, But there are certainly more considerations once it comes to a soloist who's maybe open to expanding or has... Uh, a variety of options available to them and getting to have those discussions is f- one of the most fun parts i think of the process is that's <laughs> where you can be really creative in the overall construction and how it fits into your season over the last 5 years i've been on a very pleasant journey of
0: going on a, a on a trajectory with the way i interact with soloists mm. at the beginning when you're an assistant or a cover conductor you get told Who the soloist is, what they're playing, and what edition, and you learn it. Right. (laughs) Uh, And then the next thing is you might be in a music director search where you get told this is the soloist and this is the concerto, but you have flexibility in the other area. So, okay, you work with that. Then you may find yourself in another area where the soloist has been picked, but you get to have a conversation through their agent or with them about the repertoire. Mm -hmm. And then... Recently, I've gotten to the point where I'm a couple years ahead of the planning Mm -hmm. in Wheeling, where now I get to call people with whom I want to work and just say, let's have a talk and brainstorm what are the projects that you most want to do. Because it doesn't really make sense for us to design projects here that are the same as they're going to do in New York and San Francisco and L.A. that season, because we serve a different purpose. So I found soloists love the idea of Oh, you're going to do a concert with food and music or you're going to do one that's outdoors or you're, you you I've never done a holiday show before, but you want me to do that? And those types of conversations are really rewarding because soloists are often taken aback that you're asking for their advice in designing a bigger
1: project rather than just picking a piece of repertoire. Yeah, I mean, it's how many times is it, hey, we're looking for someone that wants to do, you know, Rachmaninoff Rhapsody and various... I mean, yes, that's great, but also if they get a little say into it, that's that's really kind of part of the fun. Uh, John, how have you approached then when you're thinking of people in pieces, do you think of the piece first? Do you think of the person first? Where do you start in that process and fitting it into a program? Oh, that's such a good question. I'd say at this
0: point, there's just a few different ways that I'll look at it. If I hear a soloist perform a concerto in a way that I find extraordinarily compelling, mm-hmm. I may actually issue a specific offer to say, I don't care when it works out in the schedule. I want you to come here and do this piece. That's why we're right. going to have Natasha Peremsky next year on Rachmaninoff's 2nd concerto. Mm-hmm. I think her interpretation of that piece is so exquisite that I just I want to do that piece with her. Yeah. Other times I'll have the idea of a project mm-hmm. and then I will explore do you think you are the right person to come and do this project with us? And that may be the commissioning of a new piece. In fact, we're commissioning two new concertos in the next two years here. Mm -hmm. And I had to think very carefully about who the right soloist was. In fact, one is going to be from our orchestra. Nice. And the other is an artist from Washington, D.C. And then the the third and maybe the most exciting is I want to hear your ideas. Let's talk for an hour and just I'll tell you everything we do in Wheeling. And you tell me if anything fits, because if you come to me with the thing that you've always wanted to do but never had the time or resources to plan, that's usually going to yield a really exciting result and one that I'm happy
1: to arrange things so that the planning can be executed. Yeah, I love that. And that's, I think, too, where the artist gets to be maybe the most creative because they are not restricted by what is typically expected of them or the... The piece that they've become known for or whatever and now they you know you and I have interacted with people who are saying I have this big opera career but I, I also really secretly love musical theater and I'd love to sing uh, a program of Broadway or, or the opposite you know you talk to people and they're like oh I'd love to do I've always done these musical theater or pops things, but I'd like to do something a little more serious on the classical side. And and it's kind of fun to explore those ways of taking people who have had these secret passion projects that maybe that's not what they're known for, but, they'd be willing to try it and do something new in an unfamiliar space. And you're being very courteous and so
0: you can blame me for bashing through the anonymity here but you're talking about Sasha Cook. <laughs> That's one and, of the examples I was thinking, and, yes. And I just had an hour-long meeting with her last week to talk to her about singing our holiday show <laughs> and really? then a Sound Bites concert which is our reincarnation here of some of the Gourmet Symphony concerts and she's never done either of those things whereas she's very much known for singing recitals and supporting new American composers, right. and... Mahler, right? right. <laughs> so um, to find something new and different. And it's also a really good reason because we understand our place in the world here in Wheeling for her to want to visit Wheeling, which yeah. unless we're lucky enough to be conducting at a really big major orchestra, we have to convince the soloist that this is a place they want to come. Right Now, Enrico, turning it to you, much of the time when you're doing projects at the beginning of a pop's career, especially you're working with artists that are like, this is the show that I have and yeah. you bring that in. But you've also had a chance to explore some things that are at least some of them are happening for the first time with yeah. artists. You're creating shows where you might need to hire guest artists that you've written the show mm-hmm. or you're doing premieres of things like some of the major projects with huge artists that you have coming up on your calendar. Can you talk to us about those pathways?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a similar sort of evolution over time, like you said uh, just in the pop's vein, where you start with doing a lot of packaged shows that are sort of, you know, this is a tribute to this band from the 70s. You know, it's a Beatles show or it's a, you know, 80s rock band tribute. Uh, But over time, you start to make connections with these people. And it's the same conversation as with a classical artist. You know, you talk Mm -hmm. to someone who came to do this Broadway show. And then, you know, I talk to them and I say, hey, actually, I'm doing this disco show do you like that kind of music too? And they're like, oh my gosh, that music is so fun. Yeah, I love that. And you're like, great, because I think your voice would work really well to do music of the Bee Gees or whatever, you know, and, and it's a similar kind of fun exploration of what these people are both interested in, but then have skill sets that maybe they don't get to really work and, and enjoy using all the time. I think that's one of the most fun parts of it is starting to think outside of the typical, uh, bubbles where most of our artists are typically expected to perform and finding the creative new ways to engage them and and like you said that's a place where then you attract a new type of audience and also a new type of artist that might not otherwise come to your city or your concert halls when you're giving them something they've never done before and maybe always wanted to do right because we talked
0: in a previous episode when we discussed our, our personal branding about pigeonholing ourselves Mm -hmm. and making sure that we don't let that happen in ways that we don't want it to happen. But let's be careful as curators and programmers that we are not doing that to artists ourselves because of the things that you're mentioning. And it's so easy for somebody to become known for their tribute show to X artist. And then that's the only thing they'll ever get asked to do in the industry. And we need to be flexible with that. And it's, an incredibly fun conversation to have as you can imagine to sit down with an incredible artist and say what else is on
1: your mind yeah absolutely and then of course that will transition us into once we've had our projects start the conversation about working out the details why don't we head to our next beat beat number two to discuss that further
0: Beat two is the soloist meeting. Now, Enrico, I don't know about you, but when I got my first assistant conductor job, the soloist meeting was not something that I had in my mind as something that happened. Because when, <laughs> when you're younger, you just ask to go to a rehearsal or see the concert. But this is a, where a lot of the action happens and where a lot of your good stories come up too. Because <laughs> the sure. conductor and soloist act a lot differently in a room alone with each other than they do when they're out on stage in front of a hundred musicians, right? So um, why don't you give people a little bit of insight? Because some people might not even really know about this meeting, and then we can dive into some specifics in our our best stories.
1: Yeah, I mean, the soloist meeting is something that oftentimes will just happen immediately before the first rehearsal with the soloist. This is a time where, you know, traditionally what you think of being accomplished here is the basics of figuring out what the tempos might be for a particular soloist, talking through, or maybe even having the soloist play a couple of, you know, things that are often done different ways by different soloists. So if you have never worked with this person before or never heard them play this piece, you know, some of the trickier spots and how they'll be sort of navigating those and what you can expect to have to do in terms of leading that successfully from the podium. Also discussing, you know, deeper musical ideas that might be, be important to the soloist or you as the conductor in terms of goals for the piece and the artistic uh, results but that's you know the stuff that you textbooks think is going to happen and then of course john as you hinted at there's other conversation or or lack of detail and attention given to the music and just the opportunity to actually meet and socialize with this person Right. Because you see all sorts of different things. Sometimes you see an established, esteemed maestro
0: of 50 years experience meeting a 28-year-old hotshot for the first time. Right. Or sometimes you see old friends. And right. you know there's different varieties. So, uh, some conductors do soloist meetings without an accompanist. They just kind of sing or hum or even just wave a pencil to the music and listen to the soloist. Typically, most concertos, maybe not a Mozart concerto, but most concertos, they'll end up playing most of the notes. Mm-hmm. Um, but how... How that unfolds is different every time. My my favorite soloist meeting was because I, I covered for Christoph Eschenbach for, for two years and saw him meet with everybody because, of course, he's famous for his great support of young soloists. Right. And he always had a pianist mm-hmm. perform, even though, of course, he is one of the world's best collaborative right. pianists. And he would just sit there, mm-hmm, very nice. Mm, good, good. And just <laughs> that was it. But there was one time When the meeting didn't happen in the green room, where 95% of them happened, but we went up to his office because it was his good friend Gideon Kramer. Ah. And they go back, and they speak German. And I had four semesters of German, so (laughs) ich spreche nur ein bisschen Deutsch, but I could get most of it, and Christoph played the, uh. the, the the part to the gold Concerto as Gideon Kramer performed it and it was the best hour of my life getting to sit there with these two old friends chatting mostly about stories but then diving into this rapturous music and Christoph playing the piano mm. and it was incredible so That's just like the type of thing that sometimes happens. So be ready to take advantage of those things as the cover or assistant conductor. Uh, Have a system for writing the things you need in your part as you go when you're in these meetings. And then also just a detail. I would always make sure that either at this meeting at some point in the future, we've talked about this once before, get their contact information if you feel comfortable doing so, because at some point in the future, you're going to need a Rolodex of soloists because you're going to have your own orchestra and you want to have these connections established. So there's all sorts of things that happen around this meeting, but those are a few of the overarching details. How about you? What approach did you take in those meetings?
1: Yeah. I mean, what's interesting is like you said, I've seen uh, a few different guest conductors and of course, you know, Giancarlo or Thomas Wilkins uh, lead their, solos meetings and some of the most fun ones are i've been in a meeting with Giancarlo where he they there was not a single note played i mean it was just catching up with a friend you know there was one second maybe towards the end where he was like "Uh, you know this piece i know this piece we're we're good we're good yeah it'll be fine okay let's go and they just hit the stage not having you know other than like is this tempo okay yeah okay great let's go and then that was sort of It. The rest was just, what have you been up to? Tell me about these things you're doing and catching up with with a friend, which is really interesting to see. And to a certain extent, I think, can have its musical benefits as well, where you're not overworking something. You're really just keeping it fun and fresh and, and light. You know, the other thing on the pop side that is often different is that you are often not having your soloist meeting with the soloist. You're often having, where's the drummer? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're meeting a drummer. You're meeting a, you know, the music director, which is their pianist or, you know, their guitar or bass player, whoever's the leader of the band. And that's who you're meeting with. And then, the first, you know, official "quote unquote" soloist meeting is when they walk on stage for the first time and shake your hand, and you're like, "Hi, hi, nice." Okay, great, let's do it, and that's it. Right. You know, there was right. no time to talk about the details of the music with them, the, the guest artist. But as you work with soloists over time, of course, you develop that, and, and then it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And
0: you know, you're referencing pop shows. One thing that absolutely has to be discussed at pop show soloist rehearsals that you might not even think about is the banter. Because of course, you have the one rehearsal, everyone goes and eats dinner, and then there's the show, usually. So <laughs> you have to know, am I introducing you? Uh, when do you want to talk? When should I talk? Who's who's looking at whom for that fermata? Or how do you want to do that? So for pop shows, I do a really detailed analysis of the whole show. Mm. And I actually have a list of questions that either the music director of the show or the soloist needs to answer now oftentimes what will happen is the soloist wants to spend as little time as possible fine yeah so you meet them and go through the music on stage but then you can usually catch them right at the end or in their dressing room 45 minutes before to go over the banter stuff but just don't forget to do that because nothing can derail a show faster than who's waiting for whom right and that can get you stuck I, we've absolutely. all had an experience like that <laughs> Yeah, so I think that that is a pretty good summary of what the soloist meaning is and in the pops and the classical world, what you're hoping to accomplish and the best way to do it. So Enrico, what do you feel? We're ready for our fake ad number one?
1: Uh, Fake ad? I mean, I'm ready to hear some real live sponsorships. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, we'll be back with Beat 3 after this short break. Do you find that every time you talk about planning your season opening gala, only one name comes to mind as the soloist who's sure to bring in the butts and the bucks? That's Joshua Bell, of course. If we could only have him for opening night, we'd be sure to
0: make enough money to last us the entire year. But who can afford his fee? Plus, he's never
1: even available. Well, lucky for us and everyone else, we have your solution. Bell of the Ball. Tell me more. Bell of the Ball is the newest product from Zoom Industries, because hey, they need to make money somehow after COVID. That's right!
0: This technology allows Joshua Bell to set up a network of cameras in his Manhattan apartment
1: and live stream of performance to any and every stage across the country and the world. So now every orchestra can have the benefit of our American Violin Hero as their featured act for their big fundraiser. And with our proprietary holographic technology, your audience won't even know the difference. Your conductor and orchestra just have to follow along. Bell of the Ball. Because variety is simply overrated.
0: Bell of the Ball does not provide refunds to your donors should the stream cut out mid-concerto. At this time, only the Tchaikovsky and Mendelssohn concertos are supported by our audio servers. All concerts must occur at precisely 8.07 Eastern Daylight Time. We apologize to our friends in Australia. Joshua is getting better at remembering to unmute. We promise.
1: Beat 3 is feedback from the hall. So John, a big part of our job as a cover or assistant conductor, of course, in interacting with the soloist is the role that we play listening in the hall and providing sort of feedback to the conductor and guest artist about balance and other issues. And this may seem straightforward, but of course there's certain nuance to being successful as an assistant or cover in these kind of situations. You know, obviously our, our primary job is not to go up and teach the soloist our musical (laughs) interpretation and say, Oh, you're playing that passage wrong, but there are certain things that they may want to hear from us. Right. You're rushing in bar eight. (laughs) You don't sound good. I'm not exactly sure why in
0: bar 10. um, (laughs) So obviously the word ringing through everyone's brain right now is balance, right? So what are we going to talk in this beat other than giving balance notes? Mm -hmm. Okay. So first of all, as we collect that information, and you're right, during a concerto, the primary role of the cover conductor is to take balance notes, but then it's how do we prioritize them? Mm-hmm. How do we give that information? When do we give that information? And how do we make sure it's helpful? And that's something that I was constantly refining and balancing with not only what I found to be successful, but also the vibe I was getting from that week's soloist and that week's conductor. So um, Enrico, you did this job in a couple different places, and I'm sure you had lots of different experiences. What was your process?
1: Yeah, I think one of the first things is to gauge the amount of feedback that your soloist and or conductor are interested in getting sure. uh, one of the I think big giveaways is does the conductor turn around during the rehearsal mm-hmm. process While conducting, looking for feedback, you know, and that's when you have that quick moment that we've talked about before of either giving them the thumbs up or thumbs down of like, can you this person be heard at this point in time or not? So this is where you become really good at developing your sign language skills for short (laughs) musical shorthands of like trombone and you go, you know, give a slide gesture too loud and you try and muffle the sound. But I think the biggest opportunity we have is, of course, immediately following the run of a piece if there's a right. break taken I mean that's your chance that you can actually go up on stage uh, and talk to either the conductor or the soloist and and give feedback but certainly prioritizing is important I mean you can't approach this process I always think as the conductor themselves because you can't give every single note of balance that needs to be fixed what you really right. need to prioritize is I can absolutely not hear the soloist whatsoever in bar you know 125 and that's a make or break thing. I, you know, if they're slightly too soft in a measure of 15 bars later, maybe you let that one slide because, right. you know, it's, it's a forgivable error. Unless, you know, you have a conductor or solos who really want to know the details of every single thing. John, how do you kind of weigh out that place as you're trying to figure out how much you can give or not?
0: Yeah, as much as I like to disagree with you as much as possible, I can't in this in
1: this circumstance
0: because you're saying exactly the way that I found things too. I would say that, you know, I talked in my previous response about how to gauge the personalities, and I think that plays into it more. I'll share something about that. So if it's a music director Mm -hmm. who trusts you and you have a good rapport. I will actually feel okay walking up to the stage, like you said, after the run-through, if the conductor say, "Uh, hey, we're gonna work on the Woodwinds Bar 87 and the cellist can just like lean over the stage and have a quick moment with me if they have questions. And sometimes you have to see, Mm -hmm. are they looking at me for that feedback? If the conductor turns around during the rehearsal, like you said too, the first thing I'm assuming is they're asking Can I hear the soloist? So if it's okay, thumbs up. If not, thumbs down. You mentioned like the trombone. Obviously, if the trombone's playing and they're the ones competing with the soloist, sure. But usually, it's a general balance thing that I found. Like you said, you can or cannot hear them. Also, it depends. Typically, at a Masterworks week, you have two rehearsals, right? The first one is working specifically on the concerto. And then the second one is the dress rehearsal. And I have a different gauge of that threshold for when I would contribute a pointer if it's one of those two rehearsals. Rehearsals. the first run through, I'm more likely to give that feedback than I am at break of the dress rehearsal. The dress rehearsal I would curve back way way a lot because in addition to them perhaps not wanting to adjust things once they get to the dress rehearsal there's also the chance that they're holding back a little if there's a Thursday dress rehearsal in the morning before a Thursday first performance. Right. So we have to incorporate all these things into our thinking and like you said before prioritization I will make notes of all the possible balance issues but knowing that I'm only going to be able to communicate between one and three of those. So as I add one that I know is more important than previous ones, I'll then go and remove the sticky note for the previous ones as the hierarchy gets established of where those problems are.
1: Yeah, and you know, there are times where a soloist will come to you and they'll want specific feedback about things or passages that they have done, you know, if it's a piece they've performed all over the place and they know a particular passage tends to be hard to hear, then that's great. But otherwise, weighing out that ability to to communicate with them is very important. Yeah,
0: and I think lastly, one of the response responsibilities that we have when we're an assistant is to know the hall very well because even we will probably know it better than the music director because the music director will spend almost none of his or her time out in the hall they're going to be on the podium so a question I get asked by almost every soloist is how's the hall there's two things that I can do one is have my answer that must be very very accurate about how it is to give them a sense because if you know that if they're playing in front of the apron and it kills the sound out in the middle of the balcony, that's a problem. But also what I do is I make sure to show the conductor and the soloist that I walk around the hall when there's a soloist performing, because who knows the way they're angled or that particular piece of repertoire, the fact that the cellos are on a different side this week, may actually affect those things. And so I think that we actually have to demonstrate not only the effort that that involves, but actually collect that information by moving to different spaces in the hall during the first reading of the concerto.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I Especially if it's also a guest conductor who has never been in the hall. They're dealing with all these challenges for the first time as well, and giving them that feedback is great. I think this is a really good place to wrap up beat three. Now we have a little bit of knowledge about what kind of feedback we can give when we're not on the podium, but then hopefully at some point we'll be on the podium with these people too. Maybe we should head over to beat four (laughs) to discuss further.
0: Beat four is working with a soloist on the podium. So, we've talked about all the preliminary planning and rehearsing <laughs> and feedback giving if we're cover conducting. What do you feel like when you're on the podium with a soloist? And what are the types of ways that
1: your conducting stays the same and maybe changes when it's just the orchestra? That's a great question. Uh, the first thing I think is that I often have, I've thought about this a lot, especially last week in working with the opera. Mm. I often find myself operating in two modes, a Mm -hmm. rehearsal mode and a performance mode. And during the rehearsal mode is where I feel more active about giving feedback and working through things and changing interpretations and things like that uh, of specific passages. But then once we get into the actual performance, I've now recently felt like, okay, now it's my job to be following everyone and just guiding and helping adjust as things start to Mm. sometimes go off course. You know, this, of course, happens all the time in opera. I mean, (laughs) if you're rehearsing for three weeks like I was just doing, and then all of a sudden... In the performance, someone comes in early, they come in late, or, or, you know, something starts getting off course, it's not your job to then be like, well, too bad, I'm beating 4-4, you're gonna (laughs) adjust to me. Like, you need to problem-solve in that moment and figure out how to get everyone back on board. You know, you're not gonna teach them... (laughs) the singer's a lesson by saying well you didn't listen now you're really screwed up on your aria but that might be different in the rehearsal period you might let them sort of not be on track so that they can try and correct their mistake on their Mm -hmm. own during the rehearsal Mm -hmm. period Um, and that's kind of similar i think in the concert hall as well is that now when it's time for the performance things don't always go as planned and you sort of have the opportunity to really earn that paycheck by being a <laughs> on-your-feet problem solver and figuring out how to get things back on course. Uh, and to me, actually, that's one of the most exciting times in a concert is when all of a sudden something's not going quite right and it's your job to figure out how are we going to fix this and get back on course. John, what about you and thoughts from sharing the podium with, with a soloist? Yeah,
0: that was a really thoughtful way to put it, the different modes And remember last beat, I was like, I wish I could disagree with you, but I can't. Uh, This time, I'm just going to offer a different perspective. Um, When I'm in rehearsal, especially the first rehearsal, uh, and I'm talking more about now a symphonic concerto, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I may actually be less dictatorial in that respect because I'm allowing the orchestra who's hearing the soloist's interpretation for the first time mm-hmm. to use their ears more so that they are they know what to listen for rather sure. than being too declamatory with my gesture which might turn off their hearing by 10% and make them just follow. Mm-hmm. Then in the performance I feel a little bit more of a calling at those transition moments when someone's coming out of a cadenza or taking some rubato to actually make a little more of a decision with my prep beat and downbeat mm-hmm. to the you know recon- reconciliation point so right. that the soloist feels like, ah, we're going to there, and so too does the orchestra, because then it doesn't help us if somebody doesn't catch where the soloist right. is going to land. So I don't mean that. like I agree with you wholeheartedly once we're in the middle of a phrase or a passage, right. but at those at those, uh, seam moments, S E A M moments, then I want to actually be making a decision because I know, I remember earlier on in my career, I was so deferential to, especially when you're working with a big name soloist for the first time, just like, Oh, am I doing this right? We're following you. But actually soloists appreciate more somebody that has, ideas that they can contribute through the conducting because if they're playing this concerto eight times this year they're okay with having it be a little bit bespoke to what that feeling is in the hall that evening and gaining that little bit of confidence that you know the piece and you have not something to uh, contribute necessarily interpretively to how the soloist is going to play it but Mm -hmm. to how the orchestra joins into that process sometimes creates the most
1: compelling result yeah absolutely and and i think that that's a good mental approach too is that we're not just accompanists all the time we're collaborators and the orchestra is collaborating with the orchestra and so we can contribute something beyond the passiveness that often it feels like if you approach it as an accompanist there's oftentimes this feeling in the room of sort of well we're just here following along rather than actively creating together and i think that's something that really changes the energy in the room for the ensemble and the overall performance is when you're really actively participating on equal front with the soloist. If you want something that's not just a bland accompaniment, you have to be actively creating and interacting as well with that. I
0: agree. And uh, the person that influenced me the most as an accompanier was Jim Ross. And he had a couple mindset things that I'd like to mention. The first is that his rule as an accompanier was never fall behind. It's always Mm -hmm. better to be a little bit in front of the solos. I mean, of course, we want to be in the right spot, but (laughs) err on that side of being a little bit on the front of the beat and let them move in and out. And especially, oh, oh, this is another good thing too, not Jim Ross related, but another thing that, especially with pop artists, Mm Don't wait for them because a lot of times they'll actually fall behind in a phrase artistically on purpose to then bring the line to a conclusion later on. And at first I was thinking about how they were singing as like an opera accompanist where (laughs) you might actually wait if something goes wrong. The soloists in the pops world function differently. So that's just an aside. (laughs) And the other thing that Jim had was this kind of um, arsenal of gestures. We labeled them nudge and float and If you think about as an accompanist that you don't – you need to add a few things to you. So, okay, if there's rubato happening, you aren't controlling the rubato anymore like you are in a Tchaikovsky symphony. So how can you extend a beat but not lose the motion in your arm so that as soon as you hear a trigger, which might be an inflection in a vocalist or a little bit of vibrato in a violinist or something – that you can come in and still be in motion with the soloist. That's really important. And then the other gesture that I encourage everyone to steal is called the nudge, where let's say the vocalist has, or or the violinist has a fermata on beat four. You give beat four... And wait, but your baton is moving up. And then essentially you give another beat four. That's just a little ripple of motion in that upward trajectory of the baton that shows people that you've heard the thing you were waiting to hear as a signal for where the downbeat's going to be. And that second beat four actually forms the preparatory beat. So Mm -hmm. you give one beat four, but you slow the gesture's rebound and give only an upward beat. And that can go on infinitely until you give the nudge, which is that little ictus that then delivers the next beat and those two additions to my conducting gestural vocabulary
1: helped me become a much more effective accompanist and you know to go back to your point about the pop side yeah uh, oftentimes the other thing is to just be super locked in to the band if the artist is coming Mm -hmm. with uh with their own group i mean they know and have done these pieces with these singers or soloists dozens if not hundreds of times and so being really locked into that and learning the way to read different instruments i mean if you have a drum set figure out watch drummers and watch the way in which they have their own body and physicality where they give nudges and they give gestures in their sticks and their hands much like a conductor that allows you to read where the next chord is going to be uh, in a sustained passage or where the final note is going to land and if you can incorporate your physicality with the physicality of those other onstage accompanists that are used to working i think that's a great way to really have a nice seamless locked in performance
0: well that feels like a great place to end the 4-4 i'm really looking forward to our interview with natasha
1: Peremsky, which you'll hear after this word from our sponsor Everyone is always complaining about how hard it is to travel with instruments. I need to buy an extra seat for my cello, or my trombone bell gets bent every time I have to check it. But conductors don't have it much easier. Batons may fit in a standard carry-on, but if you don't want it to break, it has to be secured in a case, and those things are bulky. Now you can travel like a pro with
0: Baton Buddies. Baton Buddies look and function just like a metallic extending pointer that used to be used by presenters from decades ago. In fact, many Baton Buddies are simply recycled pointers from the 90s. Baton Buddies collapse completely into the handle so that they easily fit into your pocket. Then, when you're ready to conduct, simply pull out your Baton
1: Buddy and extend it to your preferred length. Your baton buddy is perfect for every occasion. Extend your buddy just a few inches for those intimate ensemble performances, or to look like Valerie Gergiev, or up to three feet for those performances of Mahler 8. In addition to the rod color being fully customizable, from traditional white through neon greens, we also carry an incredibly vast selection of handle shapes to ensure ultimate user comfort. Travel with ease thanks to Baton Buddy. In your pocket, ready for action whenever you
0: are. Welcome back to Upbeat. We are so excited now to welcome our guest, Natasha Paremsky. Natasha is a world renowned piano soloist, having worked with orchestras such as the LA Philharmonic, the San Francisco Symphony, the Nashville Symphony, and the Royal Philharmonic, among many, many others. Aside from her activities as a soloist, she is an active chamber musician, often appearing with cellist Zool Bailey, with whom she has recorded and toured extensively. Earlier this year, she was named the Artistic Director of the New York Piano Society. Uh, welcome, Natasha. We're so glad to have you here on Upbeat.
2: Thanks, John. Thanks, Enrico. Happy to be here. Join you.
0: Yeah, we first met uh, when I was covering a concert for Ross and Milanoff at the Princeton Symphony, certainly an orchestra that you have worked with many, many
1: times in a lot of different capacities and uh, so happy to be able to connect you here with Enrico. It's great to me. I have heard so many wonderful things, both from colleagues here at the National Symphony and also previously I worked with the Omaha Symphony and everyone uh, that I've already secretly mentioned that you would be our guest for this week (laughs) has said, oh my gosh, she's amazing. You're so lucky to have her. So I'm very excited. Oh, that's so wonderful.
2: Cool. I love all of those orchestras you just mentioned. Princeton and <laughs> Omaha and Nashville and, of course, the Wheeling Symphony.
1: And so this is kind of, I think, an appropriate place to start. Since you and I are meeting for the first time, I thought maybe we'd right. kick things off by talking about first interactions that conductors have with soloists, which tends to not be immediately on the stage. Of course, we tend to have a soloist meeting in place. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about The kinds of things that you find most effective or helpful to spend time on in those initial meetings with a conductor and maybe some of the things that are less beneficial in terms of your use of time during that period before (laughs) a rehearsal.
2: Well, for me, honestly, the initial, barring my old friends whom I work with a million times, the initial meeting with a conductor is often just to kind of break the ice. To get them on your side. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, in general, you know, I get it. if, if it's a concerto I've played like hundreds of times, uh, I'll usually take the time to say, okay, you know, I tend to push the tempo here, or I like to slow down here, or I really don't like to slow down at all here. I know everybody does, but like, right. please don't do it. And um, and kind of like, oh, I would really like you to cue me in here because mm. if I lead this, it'll be a disaster. So you have to really go bam on the downbeat and, you know, nitty gritty, things like that. And, um, uh, and you know, if it's, uh, if it's a brand new piece that I've, I haven't played before, I am perfectly willing to be like, tell me where the rough spots are and what you need mm. for me. And things like that, what, what I should watch out for. So it's, you know, when it's with old friends, it's like, I'll see you on stage, man. <laughs> 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 like, you know what I'm going to do? You know, I'm going to take off in all those passages. You know, I'm going to be fast <laughs> and everyone's going to complain. So to be fine.
0: <laughs> what are the types of things that you can give as advice to people who are cover conducting or acting as an assistant for a particular week that are most helpful for you as a soloist?
2: If I turn around and actually end up asking the associate conductor how's the balance translation, the orchestra is too loud, yes, please stand up. <laughs> <laughs> this is your turn to talk, say it's too loud, the brass is too loud, am I right? It's- <laughs>
1: Now, when you are working with a conductor, not an assistant conductor context, on stage, in general, what are some of the things that you have found most helpful or beneficial in your interactions with conductors once you're in front of the orchestra?
2: Pick my battles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Meaning, gosh, that's a hard one to explain. Like, there, If they're going to be like in the first rehearsal, a few things that need to be ironed out, I've learned that some things will just get ironed out in concert. And by playing together again, because it's one of the things I find is that, you know, often the first run through honestly is actually totally fine and totally great. And like, we could do a second run through and basically do the show. Mm-hmm. Some conductors love to rehearse as others are like, okay, that was goodbye. And I'm like, okay, bye. You know, <laughs> um, Like unless, unless it's the kind of thing that's so off that it's, a, affecting my playing or affecting my phrasing or, you know, again, balance issues. I'm just like, okay, this is this is how it is here, you know? And then it's gonna be different next week with, you know, it's fine, you just adjust. And a lot of concertos are really chamber music-y that way. So you can't just be like, no, this is how I play my basic accompaniment, um, you know, to the, whatever the clarinet or the flute, like in rock too. And then other things is really, but like, I think the number one thing I've really found very helpful is to empower the conductor to cue more. I just, I can name about a thousand, a thousand different measures. Whereas if the conductor is not the meeting point, it, there's no way that comes together and then it really falls apart in a way.
0: (laughs) One of the things that Enrico and I discussed in the first part of this podcast was the gestural vocabulary that's useful for conductors when they're uh, conducting with a soloist and how oftentimes younger conductors are very deferential to the soloist. Like, I'll follow you, don't worry. And, And what we've both agreed upon finding was that sometimes it makes sense for the conductor to just make a decision we're going to hear and you appreciate that and the orchestra and it usually leads to the best musical result. Is that something that you found? It sounds like you're you said empowering the conductor to kind of give those cues and make those decisions. Does that resonate with you?
2: Yeah. I, um, to be perfectly honest, when a conductor says to me in the initial meeting, don't worry, I'll follow you. Go. <laughs> <laughs> mm. That to me is like, Oh no, the key is anticipation In the best case scenario. When you perform, if you follow me, you're late. Mm. That's the bottom line. If you follow me, you're late. If your stick is with me, you're late. So even if you think you're with me, you're late. Because the reaction between the stick and, never mind, like anybody who has to use breath to play, there's always a delay. So the conductor has to be before I play. So, like, if you, and when you watch people like, uh, like Zubin Mehta, when he's accompanying, or Ricardo Shai. And he does like the rock three with Martha Argerich, who's known to be a wild child. <laughs> but you see him, he's like enjoying catching her. Like, yeah, she's not going to run away from me. <laughs> 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 oh, she's there. And then there's no late brass. There's no late strings. There's no late anybody, no late percussion. So it's it's really, it's like the simplest thing. So, like if I if I had to give like one advice about accompanying or chamber music or anything, it's anticipate.
1: I'd love to ask you about one of your new or recent endeavors, which is taking on working with the New York Piano Society, which is such a unique and really interesting business model uh, working to discover and then develop these non-professional pianists whose primary professions could be completely unrelated to music um can you tell us a little bit about sort of the mission of the organization and then what your goals are moving forward as their new artistic director
2: yeah i'm very proud of new york piano society i've been a part of that organization actually for a number of years as they're you know, like performing with them and coaching them and so when the artistic director passed away and she you know, ask every one of her final wishes was for me to take over. It was a no-brainer. Yes, mm. I've always been so in awe of the fact that you 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 would spend the majority of your day in a majorly high-powered job, like with a lot at stake, either money or people's health, or high intensity, like grinding it out all day long. And then you come home, and you're like. Oh, I got to work on my Chopin piano sonata. <laughs> like, that's crazy to me. <laughs> you know, as we were saying before we were recording, I'm like, I, I practiced for three hours. I'm wiped. Um, so you know, it's kind of incredible to me that these people have so much commitment to the instrument and to music, and I'm just in total awe and like their abilities. Like they're they're on such a high level. I mean, if you guys tune into our next virtual concert, which is coming up. You're going to be blown away. So I love being part of that because it's, I think what's really important in the mission, as you asked, is really to keep the, keep that music alive in, in people's um, existence. Like, and not just to go to concerts, but to actually make it like to play it, to perform it, to, to understand a piece from the inside out. Um, you can hear a piece and love it, and hear it so many times that you feel like you know it, but you'll never actually understand it until you have to break it down mm. and solve the puzzles and solve the issues. And I think it's a completely new level of depth of appreciation. When they hear a concert, they're like, there. There's also this empathy, you know, that builds. That's it's it's hard to recreate if you. Just go to a lot of concerts, which is also amazing. But, um, and I think uh, a lot of our family, I call them our family. Um, a lot of our family, they pursued piano very actively. We have people on in our family who literally studied with my same teachers in the Bay Area when I was like nine. They just don't want to lose touch with that. And we're here to give that, we're, we're that platform. Well,
0: that's such a powerful philosophy. And I love the way that you're drawing the comparison between people that perform the music and then they become audience members with a deeper appreciation. And I like you use the word empathy, because I think that we're all looking forward to having a live audience back with us as soon as possible so we can feel that channeling of energy as we perform. Um, Can't wait to do that with you next year here. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, Natasha. And now, the coda.
1: As always, John, that was so great. I learned a lot from Natasha, which is fantastic. It just goes to show that you know we can learn from everyone on stage, everyone involved. Because even we we learned about conducting from the soloist. You know, you, we, you'd think okay, the soloist knows about what they're doing, but the soloist also can give a lot of great feedback for conductors and and a lot of good tips there for conductors at every stage in their career. Yeah, it was certainly an interview that was filled with advice for
0: us because a couple of those things, like I like to, if I've never done a particular concerto with a particular soloist, I like to run through a lot of the piece because for me it helps, oh, you you voice it this way or I'm going to listen for the eighth notes there or whatever because, you know, I can't play a Rachmaninoff piano concerto on my keyboard. So it's one of the things that, you know, takes it from what I'm hearing in
1: my head to actualization, right? right? All very interesting. Yeah, and I, you know, love the idea too of you know the placement of the beat physically and Mm. you know if you're with the soloist physically that means you are probably sonically behind the soloist and being able to anticipate and and for both of us you know having spent so much time as assistant conductors out in the hall hearing the little comment about if i look out to the audience and i'm asking for balance that means the orchestra is too loud i mean i just found that amazing that's great Right. There's not two options,
0: that it's okay and it's not okay. It's just whatever the soloist thinks. That's right.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we are looking forward to changing gears a little bit as we head into the summer months. At Everything Conducting, we are going to group the months of June and July and produce a kind of bi-monthly product here with the, with the topic being orchestra administration. Why don't you let everybody
1: know our plan? Of course. So uh, f- throughout all of the products both articles roundtables and of course here on upbeat as well we'll be covering a vast topic area because of course the arts administration world is not just one position so we're going to be talking to leaders from a variety of organizations covering a variety of subjects and positions that those organizations have and i think it'll be really really great we have some really great guests all around planned that will be fun to learn from listen to and read about
0: Right. And as we start to announce those guests, you can find all that information on our social media. We're at Everything Conducting on all of your favorite platforms. And in the meantime, please rate and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to Upbeat. We look forward to those conversations and more, which you'll hear on our next Upbeat.